James 5.16, we have been looking at these one another commands. James is actually the brother of Jesus, but who became a great leader in the early church, writes this. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. This is the word of the Lord. Well, all throughout the ministry of Jesus, if, if you've read through the Gospels, there's this pattern that happens over and over again. People begin to follow Jesus. He comes to their town. He does a miracle. Someone's healed. They hear some of his teaching. They get interested in him. And then they go to the next town or he starts teaching a little more or he calls them to obedience or he calls them to service and all of a sudden their interest wanes. They quit following him. They don't stay with him. They're just somebody that thought Jesus was kind of neat, but, but what we deduce is they weren't really followers. They weren't really what we would call Christians, people that really banked their life and identity on Jesus. Jesus even tells a parable about this, the parable of the soils, where the, the sower goes out and he casts out the seed, and some of the seed falls on the path, and some of the seed falls in the rocky soil, and some of the seed falls among the thorns, and some of the seed falls on the good soil, and it's only the good soil seed that actually grows, that actually produces fruit. It's interesting, though, because three of the four seeds, three of the four soils show some life, right? They show some growth. The rocky soil seed and the thorn seed sprout up at first, but they don't last. And I think what you're supposed to deduce from this is not that these are all different types of Christians, but actually it's only one that actually is a Christian, one that actually is a follower of Christ. It's the one that fell on the good soil. And so how do you know, right? How do you know who's really a follower of the Lord? How, how do you know that you have this kind of persisting faith, the, the kind of faith that's really changed you? How do you know that you can really follow, call yourself a follower of Christ or just someone who thinks Jesus is kind of neat or just someone who's been act, impacted by Christianity somehow? And one of the things we said this morning in our baptism service at the 9 a.m., Someone said, I had a relationship with Christianity, but I never really had a relationship with Christ. How do you know if that's true of you? How do you know? And I think that the answer is this. You can know if a person really loves Jesus in the way that they love the people that Jesus loves. You can know that someone's really been impacted by the gospel, really been changed by the gospel, that they really love Jesus in the way that they love the people that Jesus loves. They get connected to his body. They love the people that he loves. Last week, if you were here, we looked at John 13, which is kind of the base, if you will, the, the kind of foundational one another verse in the New Testament that says, love one another. And then Jesus says, by this, in the way that you love one another, the world will know that you're really my disciples, that the seed has fallen on the good soil, that you really, that the gospel has really changed your life. There is a necessary, and I want you to hear this, there is a necessary one-anotherness to Christianity. 
Christianity, by definition, is something that is not isolated. Now, Christianity is personal, right? People talk about a personal relationship with the Lord, and that's right. Has the gospel impacted you personally, or is it just something that's important to your family? Has the gospel impacted you personally, or is it just part of the culture? So, I'm not speaking against a personal relationship with the Lord Jesus, but if you have a personal relationship, if God has impacted you personally, if you would say, I personally know the Lord through Christ, then it is by definition not private. Christianity is personal, but it's never private. It necessarily calls you into a body, a community, a family, a household, a church, a local church. Now, last week, if you were here, we talked about why this idea, this idea of covenantal relationship is so hard for us to understand. This idea of covenantal local church community. And it's because we live in a world that's filled with marketplace relationships. A lot of the relationships that we have with other people are based on fundamentally some exchange that's happening. This person, uh, you know, is going to make me be seen as better. This person's going to connect me with these folks. I can do business with this person. It's, it's easy to talk about it in actual marketplace relationships. You know, I, in my opinion, if you want to get your shoes repaired in Atlanta, you know, the best place to go is Benny's. Now, I think a lot of people were looking at me this morning like, who gets their shoes repaired anymore? Um, but I do, and, and I'm just, my opinion, and maybe some other guys out there, but I love Benny's. They do a great job. They're very professional. They always, they always do a good job, and they're good guys. They know shoes. I like going in there. I like talking to them, okay? But my relationship with Benny's, as much as I like those guys, it's based on an exchange of goods. It's based on the fact that I give them money And I'll just tell you, I'll give you a warning. I wouldn't call it a bad deal, but I wouldn't call it cheap either, right? It's a fair deal. But I give them money, and then they repair my shoes, and they they do a good job. But that's the nature of the relationship. It's based on this exchange that's happening. If I quit giving Benny's money, or if they quit repairing my shoes, the whole relationship would fall apart. That is a marketplace relationship. It's different than a covenantal relationship. It's different than the relationship that I have, for example, with my dad. You know, my dad, for a long time, for years, paid for all of my food, right? He paid for all my food. He paid for all of my housing. He paid for all of my insurance. Every vacation that I ever went on for years, my dad paid for. But you know what, guys? My dad hasn't paid for that kind of stuff for me in 20 years now. Now, of course, why? Because I became an adult. I got a job. I moved out of the house. That's the nature of a parent-child relationship. But when my dad quit paying for my food and my housing and and my vacations and my insurance and all the rest, I didn't say, I'm done with that guy. You know, what's wrong with him? He used to pay for everything. What's wrong with him? Now, of course, my dad is still gives me goods, he gives me advice, he gives me gifts from time to time. But the point is, is I have a covenantal relationship with my father. It was never, as as much as I've gotten from my dad, and who's given me more in terms of just advice, you know, and certainly material things than my own father. 
But as much as I got from him, the relationship was never based on the exchange of goods. It was based on the fact that he was my father and I was his son. It was a relationship based in love for one another. And I think one of the problems is, is that many people today understand the relationship that we have in a local church as more of a, is more like the relationship that I have with Benny's and less like the relationship that I have with my dad. Well, what God has called us to in the New Testament is not exchange, marketplace, it's family, it's household, it's covenant, it's body. This is the way that this works. This is what we're called to. This is where Christianity is worked out. It's lived out. You know, another analogy that I said is, is the body. You know, some of you all know, I've mentioned this before, I've torn my right ACL twice, had to have another surgery for some torn cartilage. That joint is not the strongest, my right knee. And whenever I go hiking, whenever I go skiing or play sports, I'm always nervous. And I'm nervous because I get cramps. This, this leg gets more tired than anything else. But you know why? It's amazing. You know why this leg gets so tired? It's because all the muscles around this joint know that that joint is weak. I mean, they don't have minds of their own, but you get the analogy. And they all work a little harder. They all, if you will, inconvenience themselves to protect that joint because it's a little weaker. It doesn't have as much to give. Is that what your relationship is like with one, another's, with one another in here? Are you willing to be a body, to inconvenience yourself for the sake of the body, that's, that's how you know the coin is dropping. That's how you know you're, you're really living this Christian life out. Now, now, certainly when you start to come to a church or visit a church, it's, yeah, there's some marketplace things. You want to know, okay, do I connect with the preaching? Do I like the children's ministry? I understand that. But when you join a church, what happens when you covenant with these people? They're saying, I'm, I'm one of these people now. I'm here not just to look after my interests, but to look after their interests. I loved our, our deacon retreat this week. We had our deacon retreat this weekend, and all weekend long, our deacons are saying, how, basically, here's what they're saying. They're saying, how can we inconvenience ourselves in order to serve them? How can we inconvenience ourselves to make sure that they thrive spiritually, that they grow spiritually, they become more like Christ? That's what a body does. That's what a household does. You know, in my household, Right? It, we love each other very much. It's a, very, it's a wonderful household, but it's not always perfect, right? We get frustrated with one another. Even the wonderful Paige, sometimes I always, ever, whenever I get frustrated with Paige afterward, I'm always like, what was wrong with me? Why would I ever get frustrated with you? And that's true. I'm sorry. But anyway, <laughs> but my kids, I get frustrated with them, and sometimes too, I'm like, why did I do that? I love my children. But that's just part of the body. You get frustrated with each other. You, you annoy one another sometimes. You have to work through things. But in a covenant, you do. You always do. You say, I'm committed to this, and so I'm going to work through this. And as you do that, you know what happens to you? You learn forgiveness. You learn patience. You learn peace. You learn humility. Who does that sound like? <laughs> Sounds a lot like Jesus. D don't you see why the Christian life is inextricably linked 
to community where Jesus works out his Christ-likeness in us is when we are in covenant with one another. And so, last week we started this. We're going to be here for a few weeks. We're going to come back to this in the summer. We are looking at these one another commands. And of course, as I mentioned last week, we kind of looked at the one that is the fountainhead of the one another commands, love one another. But now let's look at how that works out. If you really love one another, what are some of the other one another commands that you have to learn to live by? And this week, I'm kind of sneaking two in, in one verse. Confess your sins to one another and pray for one another. And these are very interesting commands. Let's start with the first there. Confess your sins to one another. Now, the context of this passage in James the context of the passage is people coming to the elders of the church for healing. James basically says, look, if you're sick, go to the elders of the church. And, and that's the context of this. It's, it's sickness and prayer. And, and I just want to say for record, this is something that our elders are regularly doing here. It's a big part of our ministries to pray for the sick. Um, if you are sick, if you are ill, if there's trouble in your life, it could be uh, spiritual sickness. It could be some sort of physical sickness. We love that opportunity. We do that at our elders' meetings, or we do that just as a group of elders very regularly. This is a part of our rhythm of care for the congregation. But this, this command about confession of sin is kind of in the context of physical sickness. And I think that's important. Why? There is something about physical sickness or hurt or pain or trial that makes you incredibly aware of yourself and therefore incredibly aware of God. When you are sick, if you've ever been really sick, you are aware of your own frailty. When you've lost a job, when you've been let down, when you get broken up with, there's this, there's this painful yet wonderful self-awareness that happens. You realize you're not in control of the universe. It's this great moment of clarity. You realize you're needy. And oftentimes, you realize your own sin. Personally, as a confession, a lot of times my deepest times of confession are when I'm let down, when I've been hurt, when I'm literally physically sick. And therefore, that oftentimes leads to some of my deepest communion with God. I don't know that I've shared this, the full story, but I'll just share a quick synopsis of it. When I was in high school, I had this great dream to play college football and love sports and, and love football in particular. And that dream was kind of becoming a reality. And, and it was, I was being recruited and all these wonderful things were happening. And, and in the midst of that, I had a very strange injury. Uh, I had a dissection in one of my arteries in my brain. And immediately, I went from being this, you know, very strong, athletic, 17-year-old boy to having this diagnosis where I couldn't walk faster than three miles an hour or lift more than 10 pounds. And all of a sudden, my health was really, even though I felt very healthy, because this artery in my brain had become so weak, I, I was incredibly limited. Had to quit playing sports, had to quit doing everything. And it was a very, very painful thing for me as a 17-year-old boy that, that lived for, you know, his aspiring football career. But as I look back at it now, and even then, 
It's one of the most precious and wonderful things that's happened to me. Because even though I would have said I was a believer, nothing has led me into communion with the Lord like that experience. Nothing has given me a sense of my own frailty and need for God like that experience. Oftentimes, sickness, pain, hurt, they give, this, they give us this great clarity that we need in order to really understand our relationship with God, in order to really understand the gospel. You, you need almost something like this to happen to you in order to really get the gospel. Because you see, the gospel, it, when the gospel coin really drops in you, you have this great sense of weakness and strength all at the same time. You can't really be a Christian unless you really know how weak you are. You have to, in order to be a Christian, come to grips with the fact that you're so sinful and wicked <laughs> that the only way that you could ever be saved is for God to show mercy on your soul, that you couldn't do anything to save yourself, that no matter how strong you may feel that you are, you can't overcome your own sin against the holy God. That has to happen. You, 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 in a sense, have to feel sick or weak in order to understand the gospel. But simultaneously, if you really understand the gospel, you feel enormously strong and at peace because you have to believe that you're so sinful and so wicked that God had to send his son to rescue you because there was nothing that you could do. But simultaneously, you feel strong because you believe that he did send his son to rescue you because he loves you because God actually loves and delights in you and wants to have fellowship with you. And if you really believe that, it will give you this enormous humility and strength, this incredible vulnerability and authority all at the same time. Tim Keller famously says, the gospel tells us, that we are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believe, yet at the same time, more loved and accepted in Jesus than we ever dared hope. And if that has happened to you, if that coin has really dropped in you, then you'll quit living every day trying to justify yourselves, then you'll quit living every day trying to prove how good you are, and you will actually be able to live in the light of God's kindness and grace. You will actually be able to live in the light of the gospel. And if that has happened to you, you'll be able to confess sin. You'll be able to be vulnerable with the world on who you really are. You'll be able to say, look, I really am weak. I really am needy. I really do have needs. Confess your sin one to another that you may be healed. Now, this is an interesting command. And I I want to kind of talk about it in three ways. First, confession and healing. If you are sick, you, you can't really start getting well until you know that you're sick, right? If, if you have cancer, if you need treatment, if, if you have some sort of an ailment, you, you have to get the blood work done. You have to have the examination of your body to know what kind of treatment, what kind of operation, or whatever it is that you need. You have to come to terms with the sickness in order to really be healed, now, we get that as it's related to physical sickness, to physical ailment, but do we really get that as it comes, as it relates to spiritual sickness? I mean, it's, it's, it's a lot easier to tell somebody I have a cold than it is to tell someone I'm a liar. 
It's a lot easier to tell someone, yeah, I, I hurt my knee, than it is to say, I am a greedy person. But this is how you begin to grow. This is actually how you get healing from sin in your life. And let me just tell you, the worst thing that could happen to you, I just want to say this to you. Hear me, please. The worst thing that could happen to you is that a persisting sin would continue in your life and never be brought to light, that you would never be healed from that. It will separate you from God. It will separate you from one another. It will have a consequence. God will not be mocked. What you reap, you will sow. This is a, such an important discipline for healing. Don't wait until you're so sick that you lose everything before you come into the light of who you really are. Have this discipline. Confess your sins one to another. Here's the deal. We already know. <laughs> we already know you're messed up. That's, that's, that's the key to becoming a Christian. You've heard me say Christianity is the only club that you can't get into with a good resume. You have to have a bad resume to get in. I, I want to let you in on something. I probably shouldn't say this, but I will. First Sunday, we want to get to know you, right? If you're going to become a member of our church, we want to get to know who you are. And so we ask you, we ask you the question. If you come in tonight, I'll, here's a heads up. We'll say, you know, tell us about your relationship with the Lord. And one of the things that we're listening for is that this person actually believes that they're a sinner in need of grace. If you don't have anything to repent of, then your resume is too good. <laughs> you can't get in. You can't become a Christian if you don't have anything to repent of because you don't need the gospel. You know, you're just a Uian. You know, you're not, you're dependent on you. You're not dependent on Christ. You have to be broken. You, you have to realize that you're a sinner. You have to realize that you're needy in order to really depend on Jesus, in order to really call on the name of Jesus. And we encourage among our members, and I would encourage among all Christians, just a regular rhythm of confession. This can happen in your groups. It can happen among friends. It doesn't have to be some big formal thing, but are there people in your life that you're living in the light with? And, and one of the tools that we've given you today, and I really want to encourage you in this, is just this kind of fourfold, uh, call it a spiritual checkup, call it uh, a pattern of confession, but just four things. This is a great tool. If you and some buddies would grab this and say, okay, how do we, what are, what are these things looking like in our life? And several of our groups are active in this. The first is just rhythms, right? So if you think about it this way. If you go into the doctor and they're doing a physical, they're going to check your blood levels and your sodium levels and cholesterol. They're going to make sure you're eating right and exercising. Right? This is kind of your checkup, right? What are your spiritual rhythms? Are you regularly in corporate worship? Are you regularly reading your Bible? Are you regularly praying? Are you in community with other believers? What are, what are the rhythms, what are the patterns of, of faith that you have in, in your life? And are those healthy? Those will tell you about your spiritual health. The second thing is purity. Are there any things, is there any unconfessed sin in your life? Is there any sin that has its hold on your heart? Will you bring that into the light? Will you confess those things? So the next is stewardship. Are you stewarding? This is kind of the active nature. It's not just, it's not just that I, um, you know, they, they, some, some people call them sins of, um, of commission and sins of omission. The, are, you, are you actively taking part 
in the things that the Lord has called you to? Are you stewarding your life well? Are you spending your time how you should? Are you spending your money how you should? Are you working hard as unto the Lord? Um, are you being the husband or the father or the wife or the mother, the friend that God has called you? Are you stewarding the responsibilities that God has entrusted you in a way that's pleasing to the Lord? And then the final one is mission. Are you actively taking part in the mission of God somehow? Are you sharing your faith? Are you concerned with the global lost? This is a great little pattern. Again, we just encourage all of our members, I encourage you right now, find some people, community group, friends, that, that this can become a regular guidepost for you. So that is confession and health. Next thing I want to talk about is confession and light. Again, as I said before, the, the worst thing that could happen is that you have a pattern of unrepentant sin in your life that continues to grow. And let me just tell you, as long as that stays in the dark, it will grow. Sin, you know, most plants require light to grow, right? You have to shine light on plants so that they'll start growing. They need, they need light, photosynthesis, and everything else. Sin is the opposite of that. Sin is like the plant that only grows in the darkness. When, it's, when sin's in darkness, it really can grow. And again, it's not, it's not that confession is some magic bullet that as soon as you confess the sin, it immediately goes away. It immediately quits being a temptation. But I will say this. If you confess it and you're regularly confessing it, it'll stop, it'll stop growing. And it'll lead to health. Sin doesn't grow in the light. When sin gets brought into light, it, it, it can't grow. If, if all of us knew how you were spending your time, if all of us knew every text message you sent this week, if all of us knew everything you looked at this week on your computer, if all of us knew how you treated people, how you drove, right? If we were all there with you, kind of peering in, watching, how would that change your behavior? I guarantee you, it would make your behavior more Christ-like. You'd be aware, okay, actually, I don't need to be looking at this. I don't need to be spending my money on this. I, that's, that's called light. And, and we need light. We need the light of one another. And I'm not, and I'm not talking about superficial uh, performance, living so that people are impressed by you. I'm talking about people that really know you. Friends, a group, are you living in the light with them? Are you bringing these struggles to light? I talk to Christians all the time, and they say, for such a long time, I said, I know this isn't right, but I'm going to deal with it. And they never tell anybody. And you know what happens? And I'm going to tell you what's happening to you right now. If that's true of you, it's only going to grow. You're not going to overcome it. Confess your sins one to another. Bring those things into the light. And then finally, and pray for one another. So confession and prayer. There's power in this. I have personally received this. Friends of mine have prayed for me. I have confessed the pattern of sin in my life. They've prayed for me, and I have seen healing. The prayer of a righteous man is powerful. Are you inviting anyone into your life to pray for you? Please pray for me in this. I need your help in this. Christianity is not private. It is necessarily communal. You're a part of a body. My knee, I'm able to do all of these amazing things. I'm still able to hike and ski and play sports, even though this joint is weak, because the muscles around it care for it and say, we're going to protect you. We're going to let you keep doing these things. That's the way the body works. Don't keep fighting these things by yourself. We want to pray for you in this. Which brings us to 
our last main point, which is prayer for one another. Pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. There's two directions of prayer here that I want to talk about. The first is the outward direction of prayer. Do you actually love people enough to appeal to God on their behalf? I think this is how you know that people, that we really love one another. Are, are we appealing for one another? That's how you know you love one another. This is how I know my kids actually love one another. You know, my kids, their kids, nine, seven, five, like all kids, they get frustrated with one another. They get annoyed with one another. You know, Imriana, my oldest, she gets so annoyed with John Kellis, my seven-year-old boy. In her mind, there's no one grosser or more annoying in the world than John Kellis. You know, I always hear her say, John Kellis. Like, how could you have done such a thing? You immature seven-year-old, you know. But you know what I know about her too? As much as he annoys her, I know she loves him so much. A few weeks ago, John Kellis cut his leg really bad. We had to go to the emergency room. We had to get 30 stitches. And she saw the picture, and she just saw how bad he was hurt and how worried he was. And I'm there in the emergency room, and she called me up on Paige's phone and said, Mom, she said, Dad, please take care of John Kellis. Please make sure that the doctor cares for John Kellis. Why? Because as annoying as he is and as gross as he is, she loves him. Even little Rainer, my five-year-old boy, John Kellis suplexes him all the time. When John Kellis hurt his leg, he every night would just say, God, please help John Kellis' leg. Why? Because they know. Here's the thing. You know how much somebody loves someone because they're willing to appeal to an authority on their behalf. If you get in trouble at work and your friend goes to the boss, puts their own reputation on the line and says, hey, look, I know so-and-so messed up, but hey, they're awesome. We need them. They're putting their own reputation on the line, in a sense, to appeal for you. That's how you know that they actually love you. This is what prayer is. It's an outward appeal to the Lord on behalf of people that you love. But also in this passage, there's, there's an inward direction. It's an interesting passage. It says, pray for, pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power. Every righteous person has great power. Now, James is noticing something here about both the justice of God and the love of God. The Old Testament, if you've read through it, it's, it's filled with many stories of injustice. The people of God do things that are unjust. The enemies of God, of course, do things that are unjust. And of course, there's justice that is incurred for their disobedience. Uh, we're reading right now, in fact, you see Jennifer over here, we, we're, for our daily rhythm, we're reading through the story of Abraham. And uh, if you've been listening to the podcast, you've been following along with us. But there's a very interesting story uh, in Genesis 18, where Abraham appeals to God on behalf of Sodom. Now, Sodom, we know Sodom, it's, there's wickedness all over the city. And Abraham, even though he's kind of separated from Sodom, goes to God. God comes to Abraham and says, I'm going to destroy Sodom. And Abraham, it's a very interesting story. He's, he starts appealing to God. He says, God, oh, please, spare the city. 
And what Abraham does there, and this is fascinating, he appeals to the justice of God. He knows that God is so just that not only does God hate wickedness, but that God loves righteousness, right? That's really what justice is. It's not just the hatred of wickedness. It's the love of what is right. And so Abraham asks God a very interesting question. He says, will you, will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? I know there's a lot of wicked people there, but there's some righteous people there too. And on account of them, on account of those righteous people, because I know how much you love righteousness, would you spare the whole city? Would you spare the whole city for a few righteous? And he starts off with 50. Sodom's a great city, big city. And Abraham says, look, but what about, what, is there 50 righteous people? Surely you wouldn't destroy 50 righteous people on account of this wickedness of the city. And you know what God says? God says something amazing. You, you begin to learn something very important about the character of God right there in Genesis 18. God says, yes, I'll spare it. If there's 50 righteous people there, I'll spare all of these wicked people. And you begin to learn what theologians call the imputation of righteousness. On account of this person's righteousness, this wicked person is blessed. And Abraham says, well, what about 45? <laughs> and God says, yes, 40, yes, 30, yes, 20, yes, 10, yes. God loves righteousness so much that he was willing to spare this wicked city, this huge wicked city on account of just 10 righteous people. Now, in the next chapter, Genesis 19, we learn that there wasn't 10 righteous people in Sodom and Gomorrah, and God destroys the city. But there's something that we learn in this, and I want you to hear this, that, that this imputation of righteousness, on account of the righteousness of one, God may give blessing to another. On account of the righteousness of this person or these 10 people, all of these wicked people could receive God's blessing. Now, you might be saying, well, hold on, I'm not praying for wicked people all the time. I'm praying for a guy that's a pretty good guy. <laughs> and I would say, well, how much more then would God on account of you and account of your righteousness and account of your faith bless this other person? This is the power of prayer. This is the power of intercession, interceding, priesting, if you will, on behalf of one another. Now, you get to the Abraham story, though, and you say, well, why did he stop at 10, right? <laughs> Because if, if, if this principle is really true, if God would spare the wicked on account of the righteous, then if Abraham really had a nerve, he would have gone all the way down to one, and he would have said to God, on account of me, would you spare Sodom? But Abraham doesn't do that. We don't exactly know why he doesn't do that, but I think the real reason he doesn't do that is Abraham knew that he wasn't really righteous. That his righteousness, as noble as Abraham was, it was lacking. Here's the problem with our prayer for one another. I want to appeal to God for you. I do pray for you. People always come to me and they say, Pastor, will you pray for me? I know you're in good with God. And they're, they're, they're appealing to this principle. On account of your righteousness, would you pray for me, Pastor? 
On account of your righteousness, your relationship with the Lord, would you pray for me? I just want to tell you, you don't want me to appeal to God on account of my righteousness. I am a man in need of righteousness. But the good news is, is there is one who's come that's not just a little bit righteous or mostly righteous. There's one who has come who is perfectly righteous. And the Apostle Paul tells us famously in Romans 8, Christ Jesus, the one who died, more than that who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who is interceding for us. And this is why I always pray in Jesus' name. <laughs> so when I pray for you and when I pray for you, I think that the Lord does honor my little incomplete righteousness a little bit, but I really take confidence in my prayers, praying in Jesus' name. There's one who I know is perfectly righteousness, who's always obeyed, who is now interceding. And you know what Jesus does to my prayers? He makes them so much better. I don't really know the right thing to pray for you. I don't know the right thing to pray for myself. If all of my prayers had been answered, this world would be a total mess. You know why? Because I'm not that smart. I'm not that wise. I don't know what's best. You know, Paige and I always talk about this. We always say, man, if we had gotten what we wanted here, that would have been so bad. But God knew better. And so here's what Jesus does. You know, it's, it's been said, I think Martin Lloyd-Jones said this, God always answers your prayers or what you would have prayed if you knew what he knows. And what Jesus does is he takes our little incomplete and my little incomplete righteousness and with his perfect righteousness and with his perfect wisdom, he appeals to his Father. Christ Jesus who died, who more than that was raised, is now interceding for you. And then Paul says this amazing thing in Romans 8, and I just want to close with this, who can separate us from the love of Christ? If you've been loved by that, like that, if you have an advocate like that, a way better advocate than Abraham, Abraham was a good advocate for the people of Sodom, wasn't he? I mean, gosh, this guy, they hadn't done him any favors, and he said, look, Lord, spare them. There's only 10 righteous people, spare them. But Jesus is a better advocate because what he says for you and for me is he says, Father, on account of my righteousness, spare them. Destroy me. Send sulfur and fire on me so that they may be spared. And that's what he's done. That is the invitation of the gospel. That on account of the righteousness and the suffering of Christ, we, imperfect, feeble, sinful as we are, can come clean. You don't have to put on a show anymore. You don't have to hide anymore. You can confess sin. You can, you can come to terms with who you really are and know that even despite that, you're loved. Who can separate us from the love of Christ? Let's pray. Father, I pray that in light of this gospel, in light of the fact that we have an advocate better than Abraham, who on account of his righteousness has, has called out to you, has interceded for us to you, and said, on account of my righteousness, spare them. On account of this, Lord, please, please hear this prayer. And I do pray in Jesus' name that you would make us the kind of church 
able to confess our sin, to bring it to light, so we may be healed, so we may pursue what is right, so we may enjoy the blessing of fellowship with you, that we'd be the kind of church that loves one another enough to pray for one another, to intercede for one another, to, to put ourselves on the line, to inconvenience ourselves for the sake of one another. Do this in us, Lord, that we may be further conformed to the image of Christ, that he may be glorified in us. And I pray this in his name. Amen.